Good morning, and uh, thank you, musicians, for carrying on in spite of the difficulties. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Psalm number 15. Yes. I guess we're supposed to dismiss the young people, the, the children, to children's church. So uh, you are dismissed right now. So if you would like to get up and leave, I won't be offended. As long as you're under seven years old. And turn with me, if you would, please, to Psalm 15. If you read the blast, the topic that I'm speaking on this morning is being at home with God. And Psalm 15 starts by asking a very pertinent question. Verse 1, it says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Or in another way of stating it, maybe a little more currently, is, Lord, how can we live with you? See, the question is, he's holy and we are not. And there's a big problem when that occurs. It has to be dealt with. And so in the Psalms that we're looking at today, we want to flesh out that problem a little bit so we can understand how to deal with it, how we can feel comfortable we, an unholy people, in the presence of a holy God, and he not consume us. You see, that is the real issue. Even in the Old Testament, we see that God commanded his people to destroy a people that were unholy. And even his own people he destroyed with pestilence and plagues because they were unholy people. And so, when God gives us an invitation to live with him, it's almost like accepting an invitation to your own execution. You see, it's not something that too many people are all that excited to do. How about you? Do you feel comfortable? Are you at home? With God. When I was a young man still living at home, I believe I was just finishing my junior year in high school when our family got a call from a distant relative. They had a young man that uh, had just graduated from high school and he was needing a job for the summer. And uh, we worked on a ranch. Uh, we were needing some help. And uh, I think that Dad was more than happy to have some extra help that summer. Oh, and by the way, they said that uh, this young man was having some problems with his dad. They weren't getting along very good. Maybe even to the point of coming to blows. And and he was hanging around with maybe the wrong kind of people. He was staying out late at night partying and drinking and who knows what all else he was involved with. 
Yeah, they were in hopes that this city boy would go out to the country and get straightened out. Well, they extended the invitation for him to come and to live with us. But he was a little bit like a fish out of water. You see, his first question to me was, what do you people do out here? He was used to the social life, the, the nightlife that the city had to offer, the activities, the places to go, the people to see, the things to do, and we had none of that, you see. He was very ill at ease when he showed up. He wanted the job. He was grateful for that, but he didn't fit in very good, at least not at first. You see, we had nothing in common. And he was very uncomfortable. And it took most of the summer for him to really feel at home with us. We had different rules, different requirements, different schedules, different work. And it was all new to him. And it took some time for him to start feeling like he was a part of us. And you see, that's really the question that the psalm writer is asking here in Psalm 15, is how do we feel comfortable with God? How do we get to the place where I can relax? I can feel comfortable in His presence. Because quite frankly, most of the time, I don't feel comfortable with God. I, I'm just admitting that right up front for you. Because I struggle, along with everybody else, with knowing that I have an invitation to live with Him. And I've accepted that invitation. But hmm, what is it going to be like? Well, before we answer the question in Psalm 15, which the psalm writer, who is David, does, I would like to back up one psalm to Psalm 14. And uh, I'm going to do my very best to set a record and to teach on four psalms in one sermon. Because, if you want to look it up in your Bible, Psalm 53 and Psalm 14 are almost identical psalms. So I'm, I'm going to throw that one in for nothing. And, and I, I get the record of teaching four psalms today. But I'm not going to have you turn to Psalm 53. You look that up yourself. We're going to look at Psalm 14. The Psalms were written for the purpose of helping people remember truth. Poets wrote poetry in such a way that they were memorable. We could remember truths that, that were important. And when you, send, you, you, you set a poem to music... It just multiplies the ability for us to remember it. And that was the whole purpose of the Psalms. And so David wrote Psalm 14, and he wrote it to the choir master for the purpose of singing publicly in church. And the truths that he's writing about are truths that he wanted us, church people, to understand and know. 
And I don't know the tune that was sung with uh, Psalm 14. I don't think anybody knows. But if we were to set it in a more contemporary setting, perhaps it would go something like this. We would read verses 1, 2, and 3 as a verse, and then we would go to the chorus, which would be number 7. And then we would come back and we would read verses 4, 5, and 6, and then we would sing the chorus again, which is number 7. Because that is kind of the emphasis, number 7, of the whole psalm. But we have to set the stage. And so, as we set the stage with this psalm, I'm going to read it, but it's important for us to realize that here is a truth that needs to be remembered. Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and they do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And then the verse, uh, the, the, the chorus in verse 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. And then verse 4. They have no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. And the chorus once again, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Excuse me. The first chorus of this song tells us about mankind's complete corruption. Paul even quotes this in the book of Romans, his, his great book on the plan of salvation. As he explains the process of salvation, Paul takes this verse in chapter 3 of Romans and he applies it to the unreligious people. He applies it to the religious people. And then in chapter 3 of Romans, he took, looks straight at the Jewish people and he says that this includes you too. You are among mankind. And he says, even you are corrupt. And even among you, there is none who does good. And you have all turned aside and become corrupt. And there is none, no, not one that does good. You see, the foolish man is the one that has foolishly rejected God. 
We would call that person today an atheist. But in the Jewish mind, an atheist and an agnostic were one and the same. Okay? We divide them. And we say that an atheist is a person who doesn't believe in God. And you just go do whatever you want to do because you don't have to worry about judgment. You don't have to worry about a day of accountability. You don't have to worry about what is right and what is wrong. We'll make that up as we go because there is no God. We don't have to worry. That's an atheist. But an agnostic says, hmm, maybe there's a God, but maybe there isn't. I really don't know. But it doesn't really make any difference to me. Because if there is a God, and I don't know that there is, but I don't know that there isn't. If he's there, he doesn't really seem to be too interested in me. And quite frankly, I'm not very interested in him. So what difference does it make? We might as well go live our lives the way we want to anyway. You see, these are people that have already made up their minds. And it's more of a moral decision. You see, I want to do what I want to do. And I don't want anybody telling me how to do it. Don't confuse them with the facts. You see, our science today, if you really look at it, shows us that this globe that we enjoy so much didn't just happen by accident but it was set in motion by divine hands that God created the heavens and the earth. And he created man, that's you and I, and placed us here for a purpose, for a reason. And you are not an accident. You are not a mistake. You are not a product of time and chance. But you, my friends, are here by divine fiat. That is, God caused you to be here. But there is a problem. The problem is... hmm. None of us, Psalm 14 tells us, are righteous. None of us do good. No, not even one. Now, we have our first parents to blame for this, Adam and Eve. And I want you to know that I don't blame Eve exclusively. Whatever was going on, Eve was there. She kind of had the, 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 the front of the show, but, but Adam was right there with her. And so he is every much to blame as she is. But because of their decision, you and I have a genetic problem. This genetic problem is the fact that we have become sinners just like they did. And sin requires punishment and judgment. And what that does is it separates me from God. That's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. Their sin separated them from God, and God drove them out of the garden. He, He had to kill an animal and clothe them in order to keep from destroying them. Now, God had a choice. 
He could have started over with a new Adam and a new earth, or a new Adam and Eve, I'm sorry. And that's almost what he did with Noah a little bit later on. He could have started over, or he could have began a plan of redemption, which is exactly what he did. And so God has set in motion a plan to redeem man so that once again we can dwell with God in a way in which he won't destroy us. But Psalm 14 tells us that here we are separated from God and we have these unrighteous people that as a whole, as as a people group, we are contrary to God. We are completely corrupt, and it doesn't mean that we're all as bad as we could be, but all of us have been touched with the same sickness. There's badness in all of us, whether we like it or not. And in the second stanza of our verse, one of the evidences of that is that mankind seeks to destroy God's people. And that's what we see 4, 5, and 6 here in uh, Psalm 14, that the ungodly seek to destroy the godly. Now that's a pretty depressing picture. If he says all and every and none, those are, those are depressing words. Especially when I'm numbered among that group, you see. And so are you. So what is the solution? How do I feel comfortable being in the presence of God when this is the conclusion that God has? There are none righteous. Well, that's where we need to jump to Psalm chapter 15 because not only does the psalmist, who is David, ask this question, but then he answers it. And I'm not going to read Psalm 15. I hope that you will do that later today. I'll read a a phrase or two out of it, but this is the gist of it. The psalm writer gives us 12 things to look for in the blameless man. So Psalm 14 is the foolish man. Psalm 15 is the blameless man. And how do I spot this blameless man? Well, he gives us this list. This is... These are the things that the blameless man does. Look at verse 2 of, chapter, of Psalm 15. This blameless man, it says, he walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue and he goes on and lists the other nine or ten things. The problem is, is Though I would like to, and I try, I can't measure up to this standard. You see, the blameless person is the one who always does what's right. Who is always blameless. Who always treats the friend in the right way. Who always... Oh, I get so tired of that always. You see. Because I can't measure up. I can't always do it. But somebody that wants to live with God in his presence, with him, he says, we have to be a blameless person. 
and I can't measure up to that standard. See, most of us live our lives somewhere in between this foolish person of Psalm 14 and this blameless man that's revealed in Psalm 15. And by the way, Psalm 14 ends with, Oh, that a Savior, that salvation might come to Israel. Who do you think is the blameless man that Psalm 15 talks about? It is an Old Testament picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only blameless man that has ever lived. He is the one that lived a life that was completely acceptable to a holy God. And then he laid that life down voluntarily for you and for me. He's the blameless one. This is a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. But as we look at these lists in Psalm 15, what we don't see is glaringly annoying to me. And that is, I see the blameless man, but I don't know how to become a blameless man. That's what Psalm 16 is all about. How do I become this blameless individual that can feel comfortable in the presence of God? And if you would turn with me to chapter 16, I want to spend most of my time, at least the time that I have left, in chapter 16. Because... The blameless man doesn't have to worry about God because he is blameless. But how do I get to be like him? How do I deal with this inner problem that I know is there that separates me from God? And the answer to that is by accepting God's plan for me. See, that's what the trusting man does. That's the man that we see here in Psalm 16. He's the trusting man. He trusts in the plan that God has ordained from eternity past because he knew about Adam and Eve. They didn't catch him off guard. He knew the consequences of their sin, and he knew what it would cause for all of us. But he had a plan. He had a plan all along. He has a plan for you today, and he has a plan for me. How do I enter into this covenant with God so that I can become a blameless man? David also wrote this psalm. And I have four C's that I would like to share with you from Psalm 16 that you can feel free to write down or to ignore. You have the choice and the freedom to make that decision, you see. We, God has given us all the freedom to make decisions. But just by way of helping to communicate to you, I have four C's in these four points. Helping me become this trusting man 
that can be blameless in the sight of God. David records them for us. The first one is a conversation. We need to have a conversation. We see that right there in verse 1 of chapter 16. He's directing his conversation towards God. And he says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So he has a conversation with God. Now, there's a possibility, the potential that each one of us have to have four kinds of conversations. The first is a conversation with somebody sitting next to you. We're all pretty familiar with that. We can handle that pretty decently. Uh, Some better than others, but even so, uh, I know that us guys sometimes are a little bit strapped in the conversation side of things, but the ladies more than make up for us. We know how to carry on a conversation. That's not what the writer here is talking about. The second way in which I can have a conversation is I can have a conversation with myself. Now, some of the important doctors that we have down the street, they kind of frown on us talking to ourselves. But quite frankly, we all do an awful lot of it. And we need to. You see, I need to tell myself sometimes, Michael, this isn't right what you are planning on doing. You need to be thinking a different way. You need to be doing something different or whatever the situation may be. I need to exhort myself once in a while. I need to change my way of thinking or what I'm planning. I talk to myself. I encourage myself. Sometimes I discourage myself. But I can carry on a conversation with myself. And some people, when I've asked them, do you believe in God? They say, oh yes, I pray all the time. What they're really saying is they talk to themselves all the time. See, they're not really involved in a conversation with God. That's what prayer is. They're in a conversation with themselves, and they deceive themselves. The third possibility, as I'm carrying on a conversation, is that I can talk to demons, or demons can talk to me. Now, demons are in the world for the express purpose of preventing us from entering into relationship with God. And should we do that to keep us from experiencing the joy and blessing that God has for us? But demons speak to us, and we can speak to them in our minds. And they are there saying, oh, Michael, it's okay if you do this. I mean, after all, nobody will know. You can go here. This is okay. Because it doesn't affect anybody else. Demons are at work in the world in which we live, speaking into our minds things that ultimately will destroy us. There may be pleasures in sin for a season, but rest assured, they will destroy both body and soul. Don't carry on conversations with demons. Don't listen to their advice. But instead, do the fourth thing, and that is we need to address 
God himself in a conversation. And if I want to be this trusting man that we're talking about here in Psalm 16, the first step is I have to truly address God, the holy God, the creator God. And that is the word that he uses here in uh, Psalm 16 and verse 1. He says, preserve me, O God. And this is the name Elohim. This is the same word used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. This is the creator God that he's talking to. See, God doesn't accept secondhand mail. He knows if you're talking to him or if you're talking to yourself or you're talking to a demon. He knows. And he's not obligated himself at all to hear or to answer your prayer if you haven't addressed him personally. Now, that doesn't mean you have to call him by name. Again, he knows when you are serious and when you want to talk to him. But my friends, we so often deceive ourselves into thinking we're talking to God when really we're not. But he says, God, the creator God. And then he goes on in verse 2 and he says, the Lord, you are my Lord. And this is God's personal name. This is the God, uh, the name of God that was revealed to Moses. And he's uh, uh, the, the, the personal God, the God who is with us. This is God's personal name. And he says, Lord, you are my Lord. And so as he begins this conversation with God, the first thing that we want to see in our second C is that there's a time of confession here by the sinner, which is us. And it includes David. And he says here that I need to make Confession. Look at what he says. He says, Preserve me, O Lord, for in you I take my refuge. You see, it's the true God that we need to turn to. Not a God. Not any God. Not the God that I really feel comfortable with. But we need to turn to the true and the living God, the creator God, who says, I'm in charge and you have to do things my way. If he is God then, my friends, you are not. And when you come to the place where you realize that you are not, then you are not the one that has to stand in judge of God. You are not the one that determines, well, you know, I like this in God, but I don't like this very much. Therefore, the God that I want to worship is going to be like this, and I'm going to throw these things out. See, that's not trusting God. I have to take the whole package or I get nothing at all. I have to accept him the way he has revealed himself to us. And I have no other alternative. If he is Lord, that means I am not. So this period of confession goes in. And I have to admit that my life is his to direct. That's what he's saying. You are my Lord. It's you that I take refuge in. The second 
part of our confession is found in the second part of verse 2 there. It says, and I have no good apart from you. That, that means that I have nothing really to offer God. You know, when you go into a negotiation with somebody, you said, God, maybe you have heard somebody that's done this. God, I, I want to be with you. I want you to accept me. And, and what I'm going to do in exchange for you accepting me is I'm going to live the best life that I can live. See, I'm, I'm going to do the best that I can to please you. I'm going to, I'm going to work really hard at not sinning just, just to please you. And, and uh, I'm not going to beat my wife anymore. And I'm not going to kick the dog. And, and, you know, I'm just going to clean up my act. And when you negotiate with God, you end up on the short end of the stick. Because he is, oh man, he's a fierce negotiator. When you rely upon God's grace, that's a different story. See, God is gracious to the core. And when we come to him saying, I have nothing to offer, you know what he does? He just pours out his blessings on you. But when you come to negotiate, mm -mm. my friends, you are in a world of hurt. You cannot negotiate with God and come out on top. It just doesn't happen. And so when we come to become this man who is a blameless man, we have to start a conversation with God and we have to realize that he's in charge. I am not. He's calling the shots. I am not. And that I have nothing to offer and nothing to bring. That's a good starting point for entering in to this relationship with God. The third thing that we want to see, this third C in chapter 16, is a threefold commitment. God, if I want to live with God, He does what only He can do, but He expects me to be involved in this process. He wants me to make a commitment to Him and look with me, at verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 16. It says, As for the saints in the land who are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight, the sorrows of those who run after other gods shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, nor take their names on my lips. As we make a commitment to God, the first thing that the writer is showing us here is I need to make a commitment to God's people. You see, God loves his people. And what right do you have, if you want to be one of his people, not to love the people that God loves? God expects us as Christians to make a commitment to love one another. And in so doing, if I'm doing that, then I need to turn my back on idolatrous things, things that are designed in their very core to lead me away from God. God says, if you want to walk with me, you have to throw that stuff out. And so the first commitment that God asks of me 
is to make a commitment to God's people and to throw out the worship of false gods in my life and to throw demons out. The second thing is a commitment to God himself. Look at verses 5 and 6. Lord, you are my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. He accepts the fact that God has provided for him and has made him who he is. Let me ask you, are you happy with who you are? Have you accepted the fact that God is the one that chose your parents, your family, your brothers and sisters? The place that you were born, the time that you were born, have you come to the place of accepting who you are as God made you and say, yes, Lord, you're in charge and I'm not. See, I need to realize that God is God. And when I make this commitment, it means I need to accept myself the way God has made me. It doesn't mean that I can't make improvements. Ladies, it's okay to use makeup. Guys, it's okay to wear clean clothes, to change them once in a while, you know. There are improvements that it's okay with God that we make, okay? But we need to to come to the place where we realize that God made me the way I am. And I need to accept myself as I am. That's the second commitment. The third commitment is to God's word. Look at verses 7 and 8. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. In the Old Testament, in the time of David, the Lord spoke to his people, his prophets, in dreams. Today, We have the inspired, God-breathed, written word. And God expects us to make a commitment not just to his people and not just to him, but a commitment to his word. To know it, to read it, to study it, to allow it to change me into the person That God wants me to be. Because a part of the process of becoming this blameless person is to be confronted with my sin and to allow God to bring about change in my life. That's the three confessions that we find here in chapter 16. And that brings us to the fourth C in my outline. That is a change of heart. Do you see it there in verse 9? Therefore, my heart is glad. My friends, Jesus told his disciples 
I want to give you peace, a type of peace that the world doesn't understand. I'm going to give you my peace. And it's only in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that we can experience joy inexpressible. You see, those are things that only God can give us. And he has to change my heart in order for me to experience it. And when I experience the tremendous relief of the load of guilt and sin that all of us by nature carry, when I come to God and I confess to him, only then does he change my heart and make it possible for me to experience the joy and the peace that he offers to all who trust in him. That's what he does. I have a responsibility to do the other things, to initiate the conversation, to make confession, and to make commitments. But if I'm willing to do that, he's willing to do the fourth, which is to change your heart and mine. And only then am I made acceptable to God. Only then do I become blameless before God. Only then can I live in the presence of God and experience joy unspeakable. Because, you see, God has a plan. And his plan is, you are sinners and you don't measure up. But that's okay. Because I have a son who's not a sinner and he does measure up. And he died in your place. So that his righteousness, his holiness, if you will, I'm going to place on you. How many times have you heard, well, why do I have to suffer the consequences for Adam and Eve's sin? Well, the answer to that is very simple. Because that makes it possible for you to experience the blessedness of the work of Christ placed on your behalf. See, you don't have to earn your salvation. You don't have to clean up your act. Oh, it's okay if you try to bring about change in your life. The Holy Spirit, he wants to do that, and he will. But my friends, we have nothing to offer God. We just have to come his way. And we find here that as he changes our heart, he places us into his family and makes it possible for us to dwell with him. Look at verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. I mean, he cannot contain himself. And it is so true when you experience sins forgiven. Oh, what a blessing that is. It changes everything about you. You cannot invite God into your life and remain the same. He will not allow it. If you claim to be a Christian and you've not experienced the joy of sins forgiven, then you haven't experienced God in a meaningful way.
sinful way yet. But you can. You can. You can go out those doors in the back a different person than you came in if you want to. But you have to take the initiative just the way David explains it here. And look for us at verse 11. He says, you make known to me the path of life. You see, we have a God who desires to give us life. He has promised to give us everlasting life. And that means a life in his presence experiencing his blessings. See what it says. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And he says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. For those who are blameless, we don't have to worry because we're trusting in God's work for us. How do we know that it's Jesus that we trust in? How do we, how do we know that Jesus is the man that Psalm 14 talks about there in verse 7 where it says that God has promised salvation to Israel and we're waiting for it. And it was a thousand years that mankind waited before Jesus actually come. How do we know that it was really Jesus? How do we know that it was Jesus that is the, the blameless one that Psalm 15 talks about? Well, I skipped over a verse in Psalm 16. Look at verse 10. For the prophet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us a glimpse of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 10. He says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Right here in the midst of a psalm that explains to us how we can enter into a relationship with God and, and experience joy and peace right in, 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 in the midst of it. He has a finger pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ who came and bore the sins of the world that you and I might be able to experience forgiveness of sins. You see, it's only the blameless person that can enter into God's home. And Jesus is the only blameless person that has ever lived. He's met the requirements of God. And as we trust in him, then he says that he's going to call us his friends. You see, we have an invitation to God's home through his son. Have you experienced that blessedness? in your life. We are going to take communion this morning. And communion is an opportunity for us as believers to reflect upon the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What has he done for you? Perhaps you need to review those first three C's. A, a conversation with God, a time of confession, and then 
a time in which you make some commitments to him. Not the ones that you want to make, but the ones that he requires. Perhaps, perhaps you've made those and, and you are here today as a Christian man or a woman, but you're not experiencing the joy that should be there. That's because of sin in our lives. You too need to carry on a conversation with God. And maybe for just a few moments, as the men are coming forward to serve communion, maybe you should have a conversation with God this morning. I invite you to do so. Let's bow before him.